Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Here a question arises. Whether it is better to be loved than feared, or the reverse... The answer is, of course, that it would be best to be both loved and feared. To be or not to be, that is the question. For if you suffer your people to be ill-educated, and their manners to be corrupted from their infancy, and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded from this but that you first make thieves and then punish them. Famous words from Machiavelli, Shakespeare and Thomas More, three great thinkers who made an indelible mark on the Renaissance era, a time of huge cultural advancement. Spreading throughout the length and breadth of Europe, the Renaissance made an enduring impact on art and architecture, science, politics and law, based on the rediscovery of classical philosophers, such as Plato. But how did the Renaissance put an end to the Middle Ages? Where did it begin and how did it spread? How did the rise of Islam in Europe influence the Renaissance? What was its impact on the lives of ordinary people? To answer the big questions on this world-changing period, History Hits' Rob Weinberg met Professor Jerry Broughton of Queen Mary University of London. This is How and Why History. How would you define the Renaissance? I would define the Renaissance as a re-engagement with classical texts. So we think of the Renaissance, as the phrase suggests, it comes from the French Renaissance, which means rebirth. So it's a rebirth of classical culture, particularly Greco-Roman texts. So it's a moment that we usually date around the late 14th, early 15th century in Europe, where there is a rediscovery, a reclamation of these Greek and Roman texts, texts like Plato and Aristotle. And what that does is transform, we argue, a notion of European culture and civilization. Now, there's huge debates about what goes on and the whys and wherefores, but in broad, that's how I define the Renaissance. It is the re-engagement with a series of lost or neglected classical texts, which changes culture dramatically. How did those texts come to light again? They interestingly come through the East, uh, is one of the arguments that I'd make very strongly, that 
uh, we talk about the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. I'm very sceptical about those terms because they're retrospective terms which we have applied as modern scholars to the earlier periods that suggest we're waiting for this amazing, you know, new burst of life called the Renaissance, this great light in the Dark Ages. I think that's a bit of nonsense. Many of those Greco-Roman classical texts did sort of disappear in a way, but they went east. They went through places like Alexandria, Cairo, Baghdad. Plato and Aristotle were read in those communities. They then find their way back westwards. And it really is a 14th century moment, I would argue, that in Byzantium, the great Byzantine Greek tradition, where Constantinople, the great centre of that period of Christianity, not Rome, is dealing with those texts, and those texts then start to move westwards, and they start to hit the Italian peninsula. So that's why the texts are recovered, and that's why, really, from the 15th century, with authors like Plato, Cicero, Aristotle, suddenly everybody's translating and reading these texts, and that's the big change. Was it a complete break from what people had known before? I don't think it is a clean break. I think it's a fantasy of the 19th and 20th century historians that there's this dark Middle Age period that suddenly ends with this bright light of the Renaissance. No, not at all. I think there are continuities. So people in the 12th, 13th century are reading Aristotle. So there is still a certain artistic tradition which runs throughout this period. Yes, there are definable changes in the Italian peninsula from the late 14th and early 15th century. But there's also a lot of continuity as well. There's not some radical break. People don't, don't wake up in 1400 and say, we are in the Renaissance. The term wasn't available to people. The term Renaissance is invented by historians in the later 19th century, we should remember. So there isn't even the notion of people living through that moment. There is a, an understanding of change and the way in which, say, educational practice is changing. And there is an awareness there that there's a re-engagement with classical culture and civilization, but not this sense that somehow a great flowering and rebirth has happened. So we should bear that in mind when we think about this idea of the Renaissance. What were the ideas and styles from the ancient world that then become infused into this period? I think one particular tradition is the idea of the self, of the individual. So a particularly key figure is Plato. Plato does have a massive impact, especially in Italy, especially in cities like Florence in the 15th century. And Plato is doing something different from Aristotle. He's talking about the idea of the immortality of the soul. And this allows a lot of thinkers and then also artists to invest in this idea of the self, the individual, and to start to create a sense in which we are somehow unique, we are existential beings. And that comes within something of a tension within Christianity, because people like Plato and Aristotle are seen as pagan, pre-Christian writers. So there's a bit of tension there between the idea of Christianity talking about the immortality of the soul and then somebody like Plato. When those two collide in really interesting ways, that's when you start to get writers talking about the individuality of man. You get people like Pico, the great Italian uh, writer, talking about the dignity of man, that we are somehow unique 
caught between God and the animals and we live somewhere in the middle and you get the development of a new individual sensibility. One thing that we call the period as well as Renaissance, many historians will call it the early modern period and that's quite confusing because it's uh, coextensive with the period that we talk about the Renaissance roughly 1400 to 1600. So you hear people talking about early modern as well. And that's why, because it's the idea that early modern ideas of the self, of individuality, of politics, of art start to emerge. We start to see just a glimpse of modern notions of who we are, what we do, how we live our political lives, how we lead our personal lives. And that's one of the reasons I think that the period is so interesting. It starts to look kind of familiar to us. Would you say that the inclusion of Greek philosophy within a lot of Islamic thinking was also influential on the Renaissance as Islam began to spread towards Western Europe? There's a real conceit that this is a whole Latin tradition that kickstarts the Renaissance, and I don't think that that's correct. The Greek tradition is really important. So writers like Plato and a very different, much more existential idea that somebody like Plato injects into thinking and to philosophy and into art in this period. And it also does come through the Islamic tradition. So a lot of those texts have gone through Arabic and Islamic communities and centres like Baghdad, and then they flow back into the West. So we've got what you might call certainly a very polyglot tradition and also a very syncretic tradition, which is different cultures creating this thing that we call the Renaissance. So it's not exclusively Latin. It does come through Arabic tradition as well. The Greek tradition is very important as well. So it's not just this sort of white European Latinate ideal. That's the myth that we've been told about the Renaissance. That's a very 19th century European imperial tradition which has tended to cut out the Islamic, Arabic and to some extent even the Greek tradition. And I think now we need to have a much more cosmopolitan and diverse understanding of the Renaissance by remembering the Greeks and indeed remembering the Arabs as well. Where did it first take root and why? It's a really difficult question to say why and where does this thing called the Renaissance take root. We tend to say that it's in the Italian peninsula, late 14th, early 15th century. We usually say it's Florence. Florence is the heart of this great thing that we call the Renaissance. I tend to put it a little bit earlier and say it's also about Byzantium, the importance of Byzantine culture, the Greek heritage which gives you Plato as well as other Greek thinkers which then come into the Italian peninsula in the early to mid 15th century. That's a really important moment and people self-consciously talk about the arrival of the Greek scholarship and the way in which it changes how they're thinking. So yes, it is in places like Florence, but it's also in other Italian city-states. It's in places like Venice, it's also in Ferrara, it's in Mantova, these smaller city-states all led, I should say, by tyrants. So we shouldn't say that this is a sort of great liberal flowering of culture and civilization because it's often by the elite and it's by tyrants. It's not by republics, even though Florence is a republic in name, but the Medici pretty much control the city throughout this period. So there's a various sort of suffusion of these things that we might call the Renaissance. That's a high intellectual one, which hit places like Florence. But it's also across the Mediterranean in terms of how different scientific 
or practical changes, like Discovery, for instance, are also affecting other places, like Venice, for instance, which has a very different version of a Renaissance to what somewhere like Florence has. How did the Renaissance then affect ordinary people? Did you have to have money to benefit most from the culture that the Renaissance brought with it? There is a sense in which it is a high elite form. You think of all the, the great artists and the great flowering of artistic productions, you know, of the statues, the frescoes, the uh, tapestry, the painting, even, I suppose, to some extent, the manuscript culture of philosophy. It's usually within an elite. But I would say that there is a sort of trickle-down effect. People's lives are changing in this period, sometimes for good, sometimes for worse. But there's a way that you could, for instance, think about trade and the way in which artefacts and objects suddenly start circulating this period. And that's quintessentially Renaissance moment. It's new. It's certainly different from what you've had two or three hundred years earlier. So it is affecting everyday lives. So if you're suddenly seeing that, for instance, spices are coming in from Southeast Asia to hit Europe, which indeed they are. They always have been, actually. But certainly post the Portuguese discovery of the sea route to the Indies in the 1490s, suddenly you have that influx of goods, of exotic goods, which is changing, actually, what you might wear, what you might eat, and therefore, of course, how you might think. You're seeing different things, you're encountering, you're tasting different things, and that is changing people's outlook. So yes, it is, I think, an elite level where we think of Leonardo, but we must also think about the way in which, well, trade changes in how people do business, how exploration and discovery is bringing things back into mainland Europe. That is changing everyday life as well. Good people do not need laws to tell them to act responsibly, while bad people will find a way around the laws. What were some of the characteristics that emerged in Renaissance art and architecture and science that were different from the Middle Ages? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. There is certainly a shift that takes place. One of the most famous, I think, would be a vanishing point perspective. So certainly in Florence um, in the early 15th century, the way in which the architecture and art of people like Brunelleschi, Brunelleschi's design of the dome in Florence using vanishing point perspective, contemporary artists as well starting to experiment with the idea of vanishing point perspective. This is something new. It's developing through science. It's different from what you see in the Middle Ages and indeed in, say, Islamic art. So I think that that's certainly something which is new. You could also look at new forms of trade and exchange. You could think about the way in which that's driving changes in high science. So you think about geometry or algebra. Somebody like Leonardo is producing new forms of representations of the natural world, which is based on a sort of wider understanding of international trade and commerce. You could also think about the exploration of the body itself. So you've got somebody like Andreas Vesalius, who writes a book on the fabric of the body in 1543. He's talking about dissection. This is something new, people actually taking apart the physical body and looking at the internal organs. Leonardo, we know, is interested in that as well. But it's also about looking up to the heavens, and it's about thinking about where we are in the wider cosmos. Also in 1543, you have Copernicus produces his book on the revolution of the spheres, and he's talking about the way in which suddenly dramatically he says we are not at the center of our universe we are in a heliocentric solar system and we are just one planet in that system that goes around the sun that is a massive massive shift in terms of how we think about the period so it's happening at the macrocosm in terms of how we think about the universe but it's also happening at the microcosm in terms of people going inside our bodies dissecting them and indeed producing art and also printed books to disseminate so that it gives people a different sense of who we are and, and, and where we are. Did the Renaissance developments touch all of Europe at an equal rate or was it adopted more readily in certain places? There's an unevenness, I think, to how these ideas impact, obviously, because if you think of a certain transmission of ideas that come through the East, through places like Byzantium, then yes, the Italian peninsula is the first to be affected. Somewhere like Venice, of course, a seaport, which is exchanging ideas. Florence as well, sitting at the heart of Tuscany, Rome. But then the movement and transmission is to some extent uneven. So city-states like Mantova are quite interestingly connected to the Ottoman Empire, but they're in northern Italy, so they're not with other intellectual traditions. You then see the transmission over the Alps is really interesting. So the impact upon these ideas, say, in France is earlier than you get in England. Germany is a different matter. 
and this whole argument about the Southern Renaissance versus the Northern European Renaissance is one that's gone on for quite some time. And it, it tells you that, yes, there's an uneven, variegated impact of this idea of the Renaissance. Iberia, Spain and Portugal is a whole other story because it lies at the very westernmost tip of Europe at this point. So those ideas take a lot longer time to percolate and diffuse in places like Spain, even though subsequently, in terms of the history of discovery, Spain leads the way in some ways. So it's very uneven and you always have to bear this in mind. There's not one sort of blanket moment at which the Renaissance falls like sort of you know beautiful dewdrops across the European continent. It's complex and sometimes there are breaks on it. There are ways in which religion may say, well, we're not very happy at this sudden diffusion of pagan philosophers because we mustn't forget that, that Orthodox Christianity has a real problem with Cicero, Plato, Aristotle, because they're seen as pre-Christian authors. And that's complicated for someone if you are a Christian. How did the Renaissance impact on Britain? I don't think that Britain ever had a Renaissance. The impact is very interesting. Certainly in the early Tudor period, we think particularly of Henry VIII, and that's a very political and very strategic way in which Henry VIII uses Renaissance humanist scholarship, which is very much of the vogue in mainland Europe at the time, for very political ends. So people like Thomas More are using those humanist ideals. They're reading Plato, they're reading Aristotle and Cicero, but it's being used for very strategic political aims in terms of Henry VIII's desire for a certain autocratic form of rule. Later in the 16th century, with writers like Shakespeare, Sidney Spencer, again, I think the impact of those high Renaissance ideals are very, um, they're very up and down. Um, nobody really talks about this idea that we've had a sort of rebirth in 16th century English culture, politics, or even literature. The drama is a whole different thing, which is a very commercial development. So I'm really sceptical about talking about an English Renaissance. I think it comes in much later in the 17th century through art. And England's always had a, a complicated relationship with visual imagery, really because of its embrace of a certain notion of reformed Protestant belief. So imagery has always been seen as questionable and problematic. It's always been about the printed word, you know, Shakespeare, Sidney, Spencer, etc. So, yeah, I'd be rather controversial and say I don't think England really has a Renaissance in the way that you would talk about early 16th century French Renaissance culture or in certainly a high 15th and 16th century Italian Renaissance culture. How important was the invention of the printing press to the spread of Renaissance ideas? Printing press changes everything. It changes the whole notion. You could even say that the invention of print transcends the idea of what we mean when we talk about the Renaissance. Because once you have movable print and you have the ability to exactly reproduce a text and disseminate it, that is, I would say, revolutionary. It changes absolutely everything. Um, it changes how you can do science because you can have a book that can be printed in exactly the same way in, say, a thousand copies that can also have things like indexes. You can't have an index in manuscript culture because you can't exactly reproduce the same text. You can't have exactly reproducible graphs or plates. I'm somebody who works on maps. 
it transforms the way in which you talk about mapping and you can suddenly circulate maps and say, look, here we are and I can send you this. I'm in Frankfurt and I'm going to send you this book of maps in London and we can talk about that and exchange letters and we can actually plan scientific forms of navigation by using those books. Now, that's something which is absolutely transformative. And we believe that by 1500, the figures are highly debatable, but between, say, around 5 to maybe 15 million printed books have been published in 1500, within under 50 years of the invention of the press. That's more books than we believe are actually written between the fall of the Roman Empire and 1450. So you can get a sense of the absolute transformation that that creates. It changes absolutely everything. And it's key, I think, to the way in which Europe's ascendancy globally takes place because no other culture so profoundly embraces the printing press. Infamously, the Islamic world doesn't. And I think that that has a huge impact on the political supremacy of Europe as an ideal in this period. What were some of the political ideas and developments that were spread through the Renaissance? The Renaissance politically is a really interesting time because one notion really is that there isn't a great deal of progress actually in this period. The Italian peninsula develops certain Renaissance ideals through tyrants. So there these petty states that are run effectively by mercenaries who control cities like Naples, Ferrara, Mantova, they're all mercenaries. Humanist intellectuals, thinkers, scholars, artists group around them and produce this extraordinary art and literature, but it's often in praise of the ruler. Republicanism is actually on the wane in this period, but you certainly do start to get new political thinking, probably the two most interesting elements are Machiavelli. Machiavelli writes uh, his book The Prince in 1516. And interestingly, in exactly the same year, Thomas More writes his book Utopia. Machiavelli is producing the ultimately ruthlessly pragmatic account of how you maintain power as a prince. That's what his book is about. Though we shouldn't forget, he also writes another book, which is actually about republicanism and how republicanism could and might flourish in this period. So you have certainly new and very contested debates between autocratic, even tyrannical royal power, as opposed to republican participatory politics. And then you have somebody like Sir Thomas More writing his Utopia, which says, could you think of another version, a sort of ideal, what he calls an ideal commonwealth, where everybody really participates? And his model is, to some extent, a kind of republican commonwealth. It's wonderful because we don't know whether it's a satire. People have argued for hundreds of years over what more means by his utopia, but there's no doubt it influences, say, in the later 17th century, certain more progressive notions of political representation, say, in the period of the English civil wars. So certainly the Renaissance throws up a whole series of debates about political representation, which is different, which is new even though many of them aren't necessarily taken up. But yeah, it's a, it's a very febrile moment politically. Who were the greatest artists of the Renaissance and why are artists the figures that perhaps we most associate with this period? 
We usually think of the great roll call of Italian artists. We think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. We think about Michelangelo, uh, Raphael, Titian. Those artists working roughly sort of 1450 to 1550. Within art history, that is regarded as the great period of Italian, predominantly Renaissance art. But it goes beyond that. You could think of somebody like Albrecht Dürer uh, working in Germany. You could think of Holbein, who's working more in the Tudor period in England, Hans Holbein. So those are some of the roll calls of the, of the great artists. Why it's so important, I think, is connected to some extent to religion. So the status, actually, of the Catholic Church in the early 15th century and Rome itself is pretty ruinous. We forget this. And Rome, as it starts to try and build an empire, also in terms of religious authority, what it needs are great statements of visual intent. That means architecture and it means painting. And that's indeed, of course, what happens um, from the late 15th and through the 16th century, the rebuilding of Rome, the papacy, employing people like Michelangelo and Raphael, and also investing in the idea of the icon the way in which you can venerate an image. Of course, subsequently, Reformation, Protestant theologians hate this. And in a way, that creates even more great art from the Catholic side. So you get people like Benvenuto Cellini doing these sort of post-Reformation, increasingly overblown, elaborate art. Michelangelo is a really good example because he sits right in the middle of the Reformation bust-up, working for the papacy, creating the Sistine Chapel when Luther's saying you can't worship icons, so they just get bigger and more extraordinary and the papacy put more and more money into visual art. So I think that's one of the reasons why the Renaissance is seen so powerfully as a visual issue because it's about the veneration of the image for religion and then when religion suddenly breaks apart in the reformation the visual image becomes more contested than ever were the men of the renaissance really renaissance men as we use the term today renaissance men is such a, a tricky term especially i think now in a sort of me too uh, moment and we have to be really careful about this because We've had a conversation about the Renaissance, which has been almost completely gender-free. And we could and we should talk about the status of women in this period. And there's a whole debate about do women's positions actually improve in this period or do they actually decline? And there's a strong belief that in a way women's roles inherited from the Greek or Roman tradition are that the woman more than ever should stay within the household. That's very much from Alberti, one of the great Renaissance men who says, you know, women should basically uh, run the domestic economy. They shouldn't be seen out of doors. So I'm worried a little bit about the, the, the gendering of this idea of the great Renaissance men. Indeed, they do, of course, cross different disciplines. We think of Renaissance men as, as people who can cross these different intellectual and artistic uh, disciplines. Well, they can, and that's also a very specific reason, not because suddenly... There are many geniuses that are floating around the Italian peninsula in the late 15th century. It's a very specific reason. The new educational system which is developed, which is called the Studio Humanitatis, the study of the humanities, comes from the Greek or Roman tradition and is a new development, particularly in Italy at this time. And it very much says, you know, that you've got to study philology, sort of language, you've got to study philosophy, you've got to study literature and music. So if that's part of your curriculum, then indeed you are going to get that multifaceted individual. 
and certainly it's gendered as male because, yes, of course, the period is almost exclusively defined by patriarchal authority. So we should bear that in mind, you know, in terms of, you know, who wins in terms of gender in this period. Well, it's, it's men and, and we now may want to look again at that tradition and at the neglected voices of women and also of different theologies and different races, which are part of this story, but have tended to be quite literally whitewashed out and left us with some of the great Renaissance men. So we need to be a bit careful with that. Did the Renaissance then really improve on the culture of Middle Ages? I'm a bit sceptical about that because we should be really careful about making this absolute distinction. Because if we do, then we say, as happens in the 19th century, and people invent this notion of the Renaissance, and they say suddenly individuality is swarming across the Italian peninsula around 1400. Now, that for anybody who works in the medieval period, who works on Boccaccio or Chaucer, is deeply offensive. You know, there is still a notion in which the, the period that we call the Middle Ages, which again, nobody acknowledged as a, as a concept. It's complete flummery, this idea of the Middle Ages, because it assumes that there's something before and after it. So we've invented that. People lived very interesting and intellectually and artistically challenging lives throughout that period. So let's be careful with that. And in many ways, you might say that what comes with the period uh, in the late 15th and early 16th century, is devastating international conflict throughout the Italian peninsula. The impact of the discoveries of Columbus, de Gama and Magellan, which globally cause an absolute holocaust. The millions of lives wiped out in the Americas because of the discoveries of Europeans from 1492 are utterly catastrophic, literally changing the global ecosystem at this time. So we want to be really careful as much as we celebrate the incredible beauty and achievements of this period that we call the Renaissance. It comes with some pretty dark and terrible consequences as well, which I think are the ones that we're still living through in our contemporary global moment as well. And that's why the Renaissance remains so important to think about because of its legacy. Jerry Broughton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. How and why history? Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.